Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the throwback episode in honor of the big bookstore in your neighborhood that closed two years ago edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, Shannon and I are joined by the FT's retail and consumer correspondent, Anna Nicolau, for a wide-ranging discussion about the fast-moving changes in the retail sector, and in particular what the rise of e-commerce means for its future. We first talk about how the rise of e-commerce has affected the way we interact with the stuff we buy, how products are marketed to us, and the overall psychology of how we buy things. Then we discuss the dominant role of Amazon in e-commerce, because we can't really avoid it. In particular, we ask whether it's appropriate to consider Amazon a monopolist. The company obviously is the biggest player by far in online sales, and of course over time it's acquired a lot of other online-only retailers. But other than books, it doesn't actually own the market in any other major sector. And it seems to introduce welcome competitive pressures to the markets it does enter. Is there a risk that'll eventually change? Again, not entirely clear how we should think about it. And then finally, we close with a brief discussion of the macroeconomic context behind the rise of e-commerce. It gets a lot of attention, obviously, because its growth is impressive. But did you know that it still represents only about a tenth of overall retail sales? And even though the sector has lost jobs this year and people are afraid of automation, shouldn't we also be thinking about the new kinds of jobs that e-commerce introduces to the economy? Joining me now in our studios, our long-lost co-host, Shannon Bond. Shannon, hello. Thanks, Cardiff. It's good to be here. There's something I do about once a month that I'm both proud and ashamed of. Okay. Are you ready for this? Confession time. Kind of. (laughs) I go to Barnes and Noble on the Upper West Side where I live because That is like the oldest person thing that you could possibly say that you do. Yes, and that is saying something, (laughs) right? And I force myself to buy a cup of coffee and a book. Wait. Just because I love to browse there, I love to walk in there and I feel like I have to spend money there. But Cardiff. That's what I'm proud of. You should be supporting an independent bookstore. Here's what I'm ashamed of, okay? <laughs> when I walk into the Barnes & Noble, I can feel like my impulsive streak picking up. And even though I convince myself before I walk in that I'm only going to buy one book, I end up walking out with like five books. Yeah. Four of which I'm not going to read and I'm just going to end up dropping off at the local library as a donation. That sounds like a pretty good way to live your life. Although, again, I really do think you should be looking into your independent bookstores. There are some great ones in our neighborhood. No, oh. those were always overrated. They all went out of business because of Barnes & Noble. The ones that are left are the really good ones. I was happy they went out of business because of Barnes & Noble, but I won't be happy when Barnes & Noble finally closes in our neighborhood because of e-commerce, even though I love e-commerce. All right. Anyways, also joining Shannon and me today is Anna Nicolau. Anna, how are you? Hey, I'm good. You covered all the Amazon Whole Food uh, buyout stuff. Yes. And we are definitely going to talk about that in the context of retail. But here's where I actually want to start the conversation, and it's with psychology. Because it strikes me that the rise of e-commerce doesn't just mean 
making the process of buying things more convenient. And in some cases for people who sell things online, and there's a lot more of those now, selling things more convenient. It also means that the way that products get to us, the way we find out about them, the way they're marketed to us uh, has also changed. Shannon, what have you noticed about all this? Yeah, I mean, I think you, like, so let's take just even the way advertising works, right? The way, like, traditionally, um, if I'm a big brand and I have a new product I want to launch, you know, we television would be, would traditionally have been the way I'd go. I want to have a big, you know, 30-second TV ad to introduce my product to, you know, tell people they can go out and buy it. Certainly for some companies, that is still the way that's going to happen. But there's so many more channels now. And also, like, instead of spending a lot of money on that TV ad, I could go online. I could target the people who I think are most likely to want to buy the product. Instead of having one ad, I could have like 15 ads that are sort of sliced and diced, um, it, it, you know, highlighting different aspects of the product. So, I mean, there's there's that whole side of it that we see that. And we all see that with like targeted advertising, the sort of things, the idea of the, you know, the sneakers that follow you around online after you've been looking. I think there's just even, you know, bigger, broader philosophical changes that, that marketers have to think about because the value of a brand isn't the same online as it is in the store. You go into a store, you know, some Pepsi has paid a lot of money. You go into a grocery store to have that like end cap display, right, where they have like a pile of Pepsi products. You know, grocery stores charge brands extra money to put their products at eye level where you're most likely to see them. That thing is completely different. If you you think about the last time you bought something online, you probably went to Amazon, first of all. Like, you didn't even search for it in Google. You went straight to Amazon, and you, like, put in the name of the product, or you put in the name of the brand, maybe. It's a completely different experience than that sort of, like, I'm walking in, and there's a bunch of different types of things that could be competing for my attention. In a sense, you almost have to know what you want before you go in there, but it's also a lot easier to research things. So it's also easier to discover what you want beforehand. But by the time you're actually in the buying and selling process, you have a pretty good understanding of what it is you're looking for. Yeah, you've probably done more research. You probably maybe have sought out some reviews or you've heard about from other people. You know, the jargon in the industry is like, you know, the path to purchase, the the purchase funnel. It's like much muddier now, Uh, you know, where people are coming in, where they're getting the information, what is prompting them to actually make that decision. And, you know, from the business point of view, it makes it really hard to figure out how to spend your money to like make sure that the right person makes that decision at that moment, whether they are in a store or they're on on their phone or on the computer. Anna, what have you noticed? I mean, it's funny that you said you make your impulse buys at Barnes & Noble because I feel like I'm the opposite. I feel like the stakes are so much lower for me online. Like I go to Amazon, they already have my credit card. It's just so easy to just like click on something and say, sure, I'll buy it. And most of the places I'm shopping, it's free returns. I'm like, oh, like what do I have to lose? Payment technology has yeah. had to evolve alongside it. That's a lot more seamless returning things is also just kind of it's expected to be easy and not just for quirky companies like Zappos used to be now it's everybody I think it's an interesting point because I think there is this question it's not that impulse buying goes away but it it changes right it's like a different form of impulse buying because you're not doing that like the thing is by the cash register and I'm just going to pick it up buying or you know I'm at the mall and I see this I'm like oh I'll just go into the store that I had no intention to but you definitely it gets so easy to just hit purchase yeah, and it's much on more your phone because then you start researching other brands of the same thing yeah. and then you end up buying like four of them right well, this is just me maybe <laughs> i don't know i'm sort of interested in like which of the senses ends up dominating because if you think about how advertising and marketing worked i don't know 20 years ago it was obviously mostly visually oriented you saw something on tv or you end up going to the store and it just 
grabs your attention. It catches your eye. When you're buying something online or through your phone or whatever, it's a combination of obviously still the visual display, but it's also a little bit more informationally dense because you can do a lot more instant research on the products you're looking at. And also it's going to migrate eventually, or maybe it already is, to the auditory stage, right, with products like Alexa, where you can just say, hey, this is what I want. I don't know how that would eventually work when it comes to convincing you to buy something versus something that you already know about. But it's interesting to me that all of the senses are being engaged now, um, and depending on how you're approaching a product, a different sense might dominate. Okay, let's shift gears now a little bit and talk about the kind of paradigmatic company in e-commerce, Amazon. Anna, I don't want to get too much into the details of Amazon buying Whole Foods, but why don't you give us a sense of what that purchase actually tells us about all these different ways in which the retail sector is evolving? I mean, I think this took a lot of people by surprise, but it's also interesting in that, I mean, for years now, so many industries have been worried about Amazon coming in and just destroying them. And they have had a lot of success, obviously, in in books and going into, into film and TV and all of that. But groceries are one thing that seem to have been fairly shielded from online shopping in that there's something that people still want to touch and look at before they buy. So even for Amazon, who has kind of managed to change the way we shop in so many ways, I think this was definitely an acknowledgement that there are some things that people still want to see before they buy. And I think that was kind of a big takeaway from people and kind of an admission from Amazon that they had something to learn in terms of physical retail. Here's what interested me about the purchase, or rather about the broader implications of it. Right after the purchase was announced, the share prices of all of Whole Foods' competitors plummeted by a staggering amount, actually, for a single-day move. I mean, I think some of them were down 10% or more. That's interesting to me in part because Whole Foods is actually a really tiny share of the overall grocery market. And it raises the question of the perception versus the reality of Amazon's monopolistic ambitions, right? Because this is something that everybody loves to talk about. And I don't actually know exactly how to think about it, right? It does have a dominant position in books where I think it controls something like three quarters of book sales now. But it's not like in that other quarter there were these like tiny competitors, right? Like the barriers to entry to selling books isn't that big. It's just that Amazon does it super efficiently and has acquired this really dominant position, right? And it suggests if the share prices of all the competitors fell, that Amazon is expected to eventually become like a pretty powerful player there. But in that sense, it is introducing competitive forces into it. It's not like <laughs> dominating to the point where it's shielding potential competitors from entering the market. This is really interesting to me, and I don't always know exactly how to think about it. Shannon, why don't you tell me how you think about it, and maybe that'll help me sort out my own... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting because you sort of saw that immediate sort of the reactions, you know, kind of bounce between like, like, what does this mean? I'm going to go into Whole Foods and suddenly like, you know, it's going to be Amazonified in some way, you know, whether it's, you know, people in your area like to buy XYZ product or, you know, whether they're going to get rid of all the cashiers and how does Whole Foods change? But, you know, the other end of the reactions I saw was like, you know, this isn't about Whole Foods. This isn't even about groceries. This is about like Amazon just acquired a whole bunch of new distribution sites, you know, in wealthy urban areas right so like in that range of ideas of like what amazon does with whole foods i wouldn't want to, to bet on predicting it but i think it probably falls somewhere in the middle i think as anna says they they do feel it's admission they do have a lot to learn about physical retail and about some of these areas that i mean clearly groceries in general in the u.s at least have been very hard 
to to move online. I mean, I think it's been more successful in Europe. You've seen some some online grocers do better here. It really does seem limited to urban areas. Just the way Americans like shop, you know, people really do want to go to the grocery store. At the same time, like you know, they're probably going to do something with it that we haven't even really thought about. And maybe it does factor into the logistics, and maybe it does factor into you know. I, I think that when you see the, that, that reaction of the stocks of the competitors, it's not just okay, it's kind of terrifying that Amazon is coming into my market, but like, it would be very easy for them to roll up a couple other grocery stores too, arguably, right? That becomes a much scarier premise than Amazon just owns a small competitor. I interpreted the move myself as the grocery stores that were already in play, uh, that were already in that market, now have to be less lazy. They're now going to have to innovate, and it's not clear that they're going to do it well, but they're going to have to try to at least become more efficient, and they're probably at some point going to have to like sell things more cheaply. Right. right. I mean, I think the biggest pressure, I think, immediately will be on cost, right? Because that is Amazon's model. So like Amazon famously, you know, diapers.com was created. Amazon tried to buy it. They wouldn't sell. And so Amazon's response was they started selling diapers, and they just sold diapers at a loss until they drove diapers.com out of business and then bought it. So, you know, they, they do have the margins and, like, and their other businesses to be able to absorb, like, a fair amount of losses. And they've clearly shown appetite before for just running losses for a long time. So, yeah, I think that that does become a concern. You know, and, and this is a pressure that's already exists in the grocery market. I mean, Anna, I mean, Yeah, I mean, the grocery market, it's important to know, has already been severely under pressure, especially in the past year. And it's also a really fragmented market where... I mean, Walmart is by far the biggest company in it, but it still only commands about 20% of it. There's still a ton of local grocers and just smaller chains that across across the U.S. Um, and they've also been feeling pressure from Aldi and German companies that are coming in, and Walmart continues to slash its prices because their whole thing is we want to be this omnipresent company. Amazon plus Whole Foods is still, I think it's maybe the fifth biggest grocer, so it's not like it's coming in and becoming number one. But I think for this market where it was already fairly cutthroat to have this giant company that's known for slashing its prices and being able to wait for decades to make money, that's scary for if you're Kroger who doesn't have that kind of cushion. This is the source of the tension for me, though, which is that it's not actually clear to me that Amazon has monopolized any particular industry, certainly not the grocery industry, right? And yet, because it's such a powerful player in e-commerce, it is dominant when it comes to access points, right? And the worry is that that part of what Amazon does will grow over time. And there was a great discussion about this on our rival but collegial podcast (laughs) friends over at Slate GabFest Money last week about how monopoly laws, anti-competitive laws, are not well-suited to deal with this kind of thing, right? It's just – it's because – the innovation is so new, just within the last you know, 10 to 15 years, uh, that we're not exactly sure how to handle it, if we even have to handle it. Because again, it's also not clear that Amazon acquiring a dominant position will end up being net-net an anti-competitive force. So far, all the evidence goes in exactly the other direction. Mm. It well, introduces so, competitive forces. And isn't the whole, I mean, isn't the premise of anti-monopoly regulation like protecting consumers? So like when, if the argument is that prices end up being lower, nobody's, like that's not a monopoly people try to break up, right? Arguably in, on all of these, in many of these sectors, that's what Amazon has done. They've come in and they just lower the prices. So the, the yeah. worry, I think, is that they use predatory prices early on to acquire a big position and then later on 
they end up engaging in other kinds of anti-competitive behavior, number one, to keep potential competitors out, yeah. and number two, to then have total control over prices themselves. And this is where I want to start talking about uh, a piece from the end of last year in ProPublica about how Amazon's pricing algorithm tends to privilege Amazon products and also products made by customers of Amazon's other services. So it does seem like it has some power over what consumers see. And that's another area where I don't know exactly how worried we should all be, right? But it is kind of an interesting dilemma. Yeah, I mean, so basically, this is the sort of thing that suggests that maybe it's not just Whole Foods competitors that need to be worried. It's like the suppliers of Whole Foods might need Whole Foods might need to be worried if you're a company who like gets a lot of your sales at Whole Foods. So what, what Amazon... Has done in this investigation. This investigation by ProPublica showed that they, you know, if if you're searching for a product, you know, the top slots in those results, which are like obviously the ones most people click on, they get favorable placement. You know, are either Amazon's own products, like sold directly by them, or people who are, you know, they're fulfilled by Amazon. So Amazon essentially, you know, charges these sellers to use its platform. It's so interesting, I think, their relationship with their sellers because they have this marketplace and the idea is like, oh, you can sell anything in the world. But it's like this amazing source of market intelligence for Amazon because then they can actually come in. Like they can see that you're, you know, what sells and how it sells and how pricing works. And then they can like kind of come in with their own stuff and do whatever they want. And, you know, you've seen Amazon's moved into its own private label. It's moved into this Amazon Basics line, you know. When we're talking about what their where their dominance is, I think in batteries. I mean, on e- at least in terms yeah. of batteries that are sold online, they have some overwhelming c- control of the market with their with their product. Interestingly, if you try to order batteries using an Alexa device, a voice device, the only brand it offers you is Amazon Basics. It doesn't allow, even though they sell you know Duracell and whoever else on on Amazon.com. But the point being, you know, if, if they can do this, they have that kind of intelligence. That is more problematic because it's not necessarily a better price. It's not necessarily that what they're selling is the cheapest price. Like you can sometimes do better from non-preferred you know, preferred sellers. But they make it really hard to find those things. Let me ask you something. If you walked into a store and you saw that store's uh, own branded products alongside competitive products, and let's say that the store's own branded products were the ones at eye level, were the easiest to yeah. find, but – it wasn't that hard to find the competitive products. Would you necessarily be all that bothered by it? No, I mean we see that all. You see that now. I mean, you go into a drugstore, right, and you're in the cold medicine, and they, and they even will have the label on the box that's like you know this you know Walgreens brand, like you know compare to Tylenol, and it you know and, it, and it's cheaper. So yeah, I mean people are you know it's like the same thing with you know generics, right? It's not like people aren't used to that. I guess the issue. Is it the same when you're sort of seeing things on the shelf at the store as it when you think things are showing up in, in rankings? And as we were just talking about before the show, <laughs> we started recording, you know, the, Google got hit with a massive fine by the EU over, you know, preferencing its own results, like in shopping results. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is something that you could make an argument is anti-competitive or, you know, is, is, is an, sort of an abuse of, of market power. So... You know, something to watch. Something to watch out. Yeah, and I, yeah, I would say, I would just if I were, if I were, if I were selling these sort of things, I'd be pretty worried about anything I'm selling that Amazon also might want to be selling. Right. Anna, Amazon now has physical bookstores. Right. Yeah. This is interesting to me mainly for the way that these stores are designed. So for mm-hmm. our listeners who haven't popped into one, because I think there's only a few right now, right? Yeah. 
unlike, uh, say, a Barnes & Noble, which groups things by biography and history and new releases and things of that nature, Amazon bookstores have signs that tell you, for instance, the rankings of certain books, and you should buy these books because it got the best rankings on Amazon. It tells you which books Kindle readers finished all the way to the end, <laughs> right? Things like that. Like, it's all based on what psychologists call social proof. Other people loved it, okay? Yeah. So therefore, you'll love it. This is a different way of selling books, I think. And normally when you think of you know, selling books, yes, there's usually some kind of like a bestseller section, but it's not a dominant thing. At these Amazon bookstores, it seems like that's the primary way the stores go about trying to convince you to buy these books. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The reactions I've seen to the Amazon physical bookstores have not been very positive. I mean, I think a lot of it is that as you mentioned, people go into bookstores now as sort of, sort of this nostalgic, slower pace of things. It's clear that they're trying to apply this sort of internet-based algorithm to the way we shop in a physical way. To me, I don't know how well that translates to a store when you're just sort of trying to browse and look at different genres and kind of casually have like a Sunday afternoon. Shannon, what's also interesting to me about this is the kind of reverse-engineered aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So the way most physical products have gone, in other words, the makers of these physical products, is that they take their business model from the 90s or before, and they've tried to adapt it for the web. And this includes our business, newspapers, right? The way the FT started its online operations was by thinking, well, how best to adapt this great product that's a newspaper, a physical newspaper, how would it work on the web, right? Physical bookstores for a while worked that way. What Amazon's doing is the exact opposite. It's taking the online experience and trying to find a way to make it work in the physical space. What's interesting to me about this is that it had at least the potential to go the route of other craft products, right? So we had uh, Richard Osejo on this podcast earlier this year, and he talked about how making cocktails, right, or making uh, craft distilled spirits and things like that have added benefits to just buying them, right? So now it's like you can sample them. There's an experience of watching how they're made, right? Uh, There's an ambiance to it, that kind of thing. And I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe something like that could be applied to bookstores. But actually, it seems to me like Barnes & Noble already took that step a while ago and Amazon just didn't bother with it. It just it just gave you the social proof and that's it. It didn't do anything interesting with it. Well, in some ways I feel like with, with a physical bookstore, Amazon is like solving a problem that doesn't really exist because the thing is that like there is a really nice experience of a physical bookstore. Like it exists in the world. It's not something people were seeking out. I think the successful places where you've seen people go in that reverse direction, right? Or like some of the startups we see here, like Casper selling mattresses, Warby Parker selling glasses, right? Where these are e-commerce businesses, but then they have moved into having physical locations. But part of that is that like shopping for a mattress kind of sucks. Like, you know, either you're at a department store or you're at like a really crappy mattress store and it's really unpleasant. But, you know, the whole the whole thing about, you know, this is sort of like the Apple store aesthetic that, the, that these other these stores have moved into. You know, you go into a Casper, it's not sort of the like kind of rows and rows of grimy whatever. Like you can go and you can like test it out and they've introduced like the easy return policies and all of that that was something that didn't exist in the physical world amazon is trying to like recreate like something that already exists so i think I maybe that's just about branding just having their name everywhere and for people to see yeah i mean i think i think that's a big part of it and that was one of the sessions when they were trying because i think at some point they were looking at a fairly like 
a pricey piece of real estate here in New York. And that was clearly just about like it was about getting their name in the right location right. where a lot of people are going to walk by. Whereas so. a lot of retailers are pulling back from these big flagship stores. But I mean, there's still some value in just having that Fifth Avenue storefront. And I'm yeah. sure Amazon sees that. Okay. We've got just enough time for one last uh, segment here. And it's going to focus on essentially the macroeconomic consequences of the rise of e-commerce. And here's where I'm going to essentially uh, shower us all with a bit of cold water, right? Because I think e-commerce gets so much attention in part because it's happening so quickly, right? At the same time, it's not actually that big a share of overall retail sales. So I'm going to share a few facts now. This is from Credit Suisse Economist number one. Slightly more than 10% of total retail sales are non-store sales, in other words, e-sales. That's been climbing for 20 years, but it is true that the trend has accelerated in the last couple of years in particular, and it might be about to go parabolic. Still not that much. Still one out of every $10 spent in retail sales in the U.S. is e-commerce. All right. This year, though, More than 8,000 stores are expected to close in the U.S. That is going to be a new record, and it's a full third bigger than the second highest year, which was just, I think, 2014 or 2015. The retail sector employs about 13% of the private workforce, but payrolls have fallen of late, but but that itself (laughs) might be a blip, number one. And number two, it lost 80,000 jobs in the last four months. That's out of 15.8% million jobs. So we are talking about a tiny, tiny amount. All right. Finally, it's worth noting that the story is not entirely a depressing one for the sector, right? Despite, you know, the the massive scale of the disruptive change to come. If sales keep climbing at the same time that employment in the physical part of the space uh, either is stagnant or it falls, it means that there's productivity growth there, right? And that means that people have a little bit more money to spend in other places And it means that uh, spending shifts to other sectors of the economy, and that's okay. And finally, it's not like there are no e-commerce-specific jobs either, right? There's a ton of work in fulfillment centers. There is some offsetting benefit there, and we'll share more of the specific numbers uh, on the website and on the blog post that accompanies this chat. So I don't always know like exactly what mood I should take when we're talking about this. <laughs> but it seems to me like if this is one where technological forces are driving a big change, then in the long run, at least, despite what happens in the short run, this is going to be a positive for the economy overall. What do you guys think? Well, it seems like there's kind of no argument that, I mean, certainly if you're kind of looking at like malls and department stores, like basically we overbuilt in the US, right? Like there's just like... Yeah. And, and so in some ways, this is a correction that was probably necessary. I also really liked – and one of the pieces we read in prep for this um, was by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic. And he talked about sort of this idea that, like, the death of the mall is another example of, like, the breaking up of the bundle, which is something we talk about in media all the time. But I think it makes a lot of sense in retail too, right? I mean, yeah. people – like, there's this, this increase in specialization. You know, people really want – you know, it's a move maybe towards quality or towards craft or towards something where it's, like, instead of going to the mall or going to the department store, I want to have a better experience, like, with a very particular retailer, whether that's online or in a in a particular store. So and I guess to your point about that you know ultimately the sort of the growth the suggested growth in productivity like that's like a good sign overall for the economy. I mean it's like one of these things where like that's probably true but it like really sucks if you are an employee of Lord and Taylor right. or JCPenney or 
whoever else, you know? Are the people who are losing those jobs, are they the ones actually also then moving over to work in e-commerce? Like, what are the opportunities for them? I mean, there's a whole human side to this that it's a little, yeah, it's hard to grapple with. You, yeah. don't, you don't want to be callous. And for individuals who lose their jobs, it's awful, right? At the same time, I mean, there is a hidden cost to a kind of economic stagnance, too, which is that yeah. people don't get jobs in the first place if the economy isn't growing. Yeah, and if you've been to um, a mall in, like, recent years, I mean, it's a pretty depressing place, right? I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of an emotional nostalgia for malls. Yeah. But, I mean, are malls themselves such a great thing? I mean, even in kind of the glory days, it's not like they were some, like, socially conscious, like, really helping out no. lower-income <laughs> families kind of establishments. They're capitalism. It's not... I don't really see why we're, like, we glorify these old-fashioned malls, but Amazon is a demon. Right. Right, but capitalism is capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's crushing people in different ways. Someone but never got addicted to orange jewels. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me just give you one last fact to close here. According to the Institute for International Finance, it takes roughly eight employees in a department store to generate a million dollars of sales, right? It takes 0.7 employees in e-commerce to generate the exact same number of sales. And furthermore, that number hasn't changed for department stores for about three decades, right? Whereas it keeps falling for e-commerce. So whether or not you lament, right, the end of the mall, or you think that there's like some emotional attachment here that's going to be lost as there is with everything because Life is fleeting, and then it ends. This is okay. a really depressing ending. <laughs> uh, you know, it's change that's coming, and uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, we do anybody any good by not embracing it. Okay. And that is the end of our retail segment. Uh, but before we go, guys, let's do long-form recommendations. Uh, Shannon, what should our listeners be reading or listening to or watching? I'm going to steal a recommendation um, that I found out about just recently. It was recommended to me by uh, Steve Metcalf on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Another shout-out to Slate. It's a podcast called Hi-Fi Nation. Fi is P-H-I. And it's by this uh, professor named Barry Lamb, and it's about philosophy. But his idea is making a podcast that sort of takes the storytelling techniques of like This American Life and Radiolab as a way of explaining philosophical concepts. The first one's really good. It's all about the Milton Hershey fortune and sort of what, what are basically the, the, pre- the premise that he's getting at is like, what do the living owe to the dead? Like, how do we honor the wishes of the dead? How are we legally obligated to fulfill them or morally obligated or whoever else? So I recommend it. Hi-Fi Nation. Right. That sounds great. Right. Anna? Uh, there's this really good, this long BuzzFeed interview with Sherman Alexie, the Native American uh, filmmaker and novelist. So he has this new memoir out, and it's just this long sort of devastating interview about his life and his mom's life and his life under Trump. I cried. Yeah. Mine is uh, a nicely reported and graphically accompanied Vox piece about people who stay home versus people who leave to get jobs after college and never return. Uh, And it talks about the socioeconomic differences between the two groups. It obviously talks about the political differences between the two groups, but it's done so in such a way that makes it clear that the things that divide your childhood friends that you left behind in your hometown from your friends now in New York uh, are smaller than you'd think.
And that is the end of this week's Alpha Chat. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Please rate the show on iTunes. We see it when you do, and we really appreciate it. It's a great way to give us feedback. ft.com forward slash alphachat is where you can get show notes to this episode and all other prior episodes. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Shannon, where are you? At Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Anna, where are you? I'm just going to spell it A-N-N-A-K-N-I-C-O-L-A-O-U. And finally, Amy Keene, our producer and editor, is a vanilla ice cream cone on a Saturday afternoon walk through Central Park in the summer, or through any park, in any season, really. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.